HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special cider show being recorded in December 2015 with, with Greg Hall from Virtue Cider. Hey, Jimmy. Number 43. Hey, Greg, it's great to have you back on the show. And um, I know when we started with you way back in 2011, uh, Cider Week was just starting, and uh, that's kind of when we got to know you. We knew you from some beer events before, and we're going to talk a little about beer and cider today, but really we're talking about you Jumping into cider, be, being one of the go-to guys who's really um, helped launch the cider revolution. That's that's what I see as now, and the, many people knew you for a long time as a brewer as well. And uh, let's introduce everyone. We've got Greg Hall from Virtue Cider. Brendan Woodcock. And Josh Kennard. So these guys are, are, are part of the sales team for, for Virtue, and they're both kind of Cicerone. So we're going to taste some ciders and have an interesting show. And again, thanks to uh, Union Beer Distributors, our sponsor, um, for suppliers of great uh, ales and ciders. All right. So, we are HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Uh, this is probably going to air in January. So, Greg, it's great to have you back, man. Um, you know, like I said, when, when Cider Week first started, you, you were already getting interested in cider. Um, tell us about your early journeys and travels and ciders that inspired you. Yeah, uh, Jimmy, that's right. 2011 seems like a long time ago now. Uh, when I left Goose Island and told friends I was going to start making cider, the typical response was, oh, that's great. Uh, my kids love cider. I put a box of it in their lunchbox every year, every every day. Um, and I said, no, that's that's juice. I'm making cider. It's fermented. And they'd say, I don't know if you can ferment apples. Does that work? <laughs> so um, now cider's everywhere. So um, I got pretty darn lucky with my timing on that. But I first uh, became smitten with cider Actually, um, a few years before that, back in 2000, uh, I had a crew of about seven or eight brewers at Goose Island. And we had a budget to go out to the Craft Brewers Conference, and I think it was in San Diego that year. So I had a budget of maybe four grand to take all these guys out there, get them registered and everything. And I'm looking for plane tickets, and plane tickets were like 500 bucks to get to San Diego. And... Plane tickets to London were like three fifty nine. And I'm like, <laughs> excuse my French, but I'm, you know, screw uh, the West Coast. We're going to, we're going to England to to try some ales because I've been over there a lot. So we spent a week in England. Um, you know, went through um, uh, went through Fuller's, went through Young's, rest in peace. Um, went to uh, uh, Burton on Trent, uh, Bass and Marston's. Um, went up to uh, the city of York, um, went through Tadcaster and Sam Smith, and then uh, both Black Sheep um, in Massam and uh, Theakston's. And when we were up in the city of York, we wandered into this glorious little pub called The Maltings. Good name for a beer pub, right? <laughs> um, they happened to be having a cider festival, though. So we just happened to wander in and 
they're kind of the Jimmy's 43 of, uh, of uh, the um, only about 400 years older um, of, of the city of York. We're like 10 years old now. Yeah. <laughs> they, had, um, they had 40 casks of cider on the wall, so all gravity-fed. Wow. And we're in there to drink beer, not cider, but we're like, okay, you know, there's seven of us, sure. We'll take the first seven ciders, pass them around, see what we think, and then we'll try some of these good northern ales. And we got these ciders, and we were blown away. We were, you know, um, that was an epiphany moment for me. Before that, I thought that, you know, cider was one kind of cider, you know, and it was all very fruit-forward, sweet, pretty clean, and, you know, pretty one-dimensional. And here we had ciders that were um, crisp like Pilsner, that were sour like Belgian ales, that were funky like Abbey ales, that were um, some that were crystal clear, some that were murky, um, some that were f- had more tannin than any red wine I'd ever had. And we were just blown away. So we ordered seven more ciders, and they were different. And then we ordered seven more, and they were different. And the next day, we were supposed to drive up to uh, go to Timothy Taylor and uh, Kaylee, and we canceled it. So we could go back to the maltings and drink the rest of the cider. Sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> Timothy Taylor, the, land, the landlord beer. I've had a few times. Oh man, it's great, great beer. Still, never been through that brewery. I blew my chance, but I got into cider instead. So I think I did okay. So um, in 2000, we came back to the states um, and had a lot of good ideas for making our ales better at Goose Island, um, but also said, "Hey, let's do cider because you know what." Nobody's doing cider this way. You know, there's like 10 or 20 people doing cider and they're all doing the same thing. You know, it's kind of like beer was 10 years ago where you'd walk into a bar, they'd have eight taps and they're all pale lagers, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't really, until cider we kicked in 2011, we, we never had a cider on tap at James number 43. And first it was the choice, but it was also the culture. Like, I wasn't even ready for it then. And, you know, you kind of came in at the right time. Suddenly, cider. I think Cider Week was really one thing that, that really got people interested in it. I think the way the New York City one was run, it, it placed top ciders in the best restaurants and, and beverage programs. And, and it was different than a beer week, too. The, the approach was different. I've seen the clientele that have come to it. And that's one thing we're going to talk about on the show. We're going to talk about things like Greg's Inspirations and Fine Ciders. We're not going to talk about cheap ciders and mass-produced ciders because I'm not really interested in that. And, and the stuff that we've been drinking is crazy shit like, you know, Farnham Hill and, and, and Eden and Black Duck from uh, Finger Lakes. But we, we have your, your, your mitten here. Guys, tell us about this one. So this is we, – we, since you started, Greg, I will say that I've, I've liked your ciders a lot. And um, this Thank one you. is right up my alley. So what is this? The mitten? Yeah, so this is this is the mitten. Um, I, um, Jimmy, you may know I've got a little bit of background in bourbon barrel aging. Heard of that? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I did that with beer um, for a while, and it became uh, pretty naturally apparent that we should do something um, with cider too. And uh, when I was doing my um, my training in cider, I went over to England and went to France and visited a bunch of people. And I tell you, the first thing I found was, as a brewer, when you go to Europe for inspiration, because back in the 80s, when I was a young brewer, and in 90s, when I first started, um, there wasn't a whole lot of inspiration in the U.S. There weren't a whole lot of people kind of doing it right yet. Um, So I would get my little Michael Jackson pocket guide to beer and go over to England and go to London. And then I go to Germany and I go to Munich and I go to Czech and I go to Prague and I go to Belgium and I go to Brussels. Beer is an urban beverage. Beer has always been made in the city because that's where the people are, that's where the drinkers are. And the main ingredient in beer is water. So as long as you had a good source of water, you could bring the other ingredients, barley and hops, to the brewery. And those are fairly stable ingredients. So beer has always been urban. Now, are there farmhouse breweries that are wonderful and glorious? Absolutely. They're like, you know, one 
tenth of one hundredth of one percent of the beer that's made. Most of the beer is made in the, bre- in the breweries in the cities. And you even look at, like, craft beer, you know. You've got um, guys like Brooklyn, you know, here in town. Um, certainly Goose in Chicago. Um, you know, the, the big cities have the big craft breweries, too. And they want to sell to people in the cities. Yeah, absolutely. That's, it, that's always going to be where the drinkers are. Um, but when I, when I decided to be a cider maker and I went over to Europe, um, I didn't go to the city. I went to the farm. That's where they make cider, and cider is not a much of a, as much of an industrial enterprise as it is a um, multi generational family farmer enterprise. So, if you go to England, if you go to northern France or northern Spain, where they have these great thousand year cider histories, they have families making cider that have been making cider from anywhere from 150 years. To 350 years, you know, uh, the oldest one I found in in Normandy, and there's probably older than that, um, is uh, um, right around the corner from Dupont. Dupont is only fifth generation. Now, if there's anything left in America that's fifth generation, you know, hooray for them. That's right. Yeah. Right. So Domaine Dupont in yeah. Normandy. Yeah. Domaine Dupont is fifth generation. Those are some it, of the first. That was the first cider I got turned on to. And, and I consider them the deciders that I would want. To serve. Yes, mm-hmm. they they uh, have have long been the standard. Um, but you go there, and the other guys in the Route de Cidre, they're like, "Oh yeah, they're only fifth generation. They'll figure it out in, a, in another <laughs> hundred years." Um, you know, Granval is probably the closest cidery to them. They're thirteenth generation. You know what I mean. Yeah. There's no one in America that's 13th It's generation. amazing they, they even have the you rec- records going back that right. far, you know? They have barrels in their farm that, you know, I don't know if this is for show or if this is authentic, that are labeled from the 1700s that are barrels that they still use to hold either cider or Calvados. So, really, really cool stuff. So, right. and and with this, uh, this cider in particular, the... Uh, the bitten, you were saying it's bourbon barrel aged. What's the um, what's the length of time in the barrel? What's what's the uh, apple varieties that you use in it? Or? So um, what I found um, when I went to England and France. So I, I first went over there trying to find a mentor for English cider and French cider. So uh, a guy named Tom Oliver became my English cider mentor, and then the Duponts became kind of my French cider mentors. So I spent a lot of time with Tom. We've actually done two collaboration ciders. Um, the first one he did is called Gold Rush, which um, we uh, kind of collaborated in that over um, a half dozen, okay, maybe a couple dozen pints at the Prince of Wales in the town of Ledbury. And, and we uh, had that a couple years ago. That was really great. Oh, man, great cider. That was my so kind of cider. It is, um, it is a bunch of bittersweet apples that he native ferments, and then he does a dosage in the barrel of Belgian yeast to give it added complexity um, and he, he you know when we met it turns out um, I was a big fan of his cider he was a big fan of Matilda so you know I'm yeah, like what a cider maker in the country knows about Matilda that's so cool so um, we, we did that first collaboration and I think that was probably the first um, um, cross Atlantic cider collaboration and then we did one in, um, in Michigan that we had him come over to Michigan to our farm and help us do our blend for a cider that we call the Ledbury in honor of the town where we had our first uh, meeting, which is a, a lovely market town in, uh, in Herefordshire. That's great. So, so Brendan, I know, and, and mm-hmm. Josh, you guys are advanced-level Cicerones. In, in your training, uh, is there a cider component, or, or have you, like, started with certain ciders as, as, as you're learning about it yeah uh I've just one note we're certainly just pursuing that uh um classification it's still uh still in, in cider progress to call it. but uh <laughs> but I, I don't think that um outside of having a general awareness about it that there's any particular component of the syllabus that uh, is required to focus on it but i think that you know we're sitting here talking about the industry changing over five ten years i think absolutely there's going to be something developed Cider. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if it's already in the works, and it would probably be a separate certification 
program. I know BJCP just released the new style guidelines for 2015, and they split off uh, cider from um, the 2008 guidelines where it was included in the beer. Cider and mead sort of got their own space, and uh, opinions probably vary on, on whether or not that was a good thing, but I think it is allowing the industry to grow in a separate way, um, which probably could allow for some uh, eventual greater creativity and, and greater awareness. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, we'll see how it goes, probably. Yeah. And what about for you, Josh? Yeah, I, I agree with pretty much everything Brendan just said. Um, you know, the cider components for, you know, in particular the, the Cicerone um, exams is, is fairly minimal. Um, it's more of a, you know, it's, it's a personal thing for, for me. Um, you know, this isn't part of, you know, my, my studies or anything um, for the next level or anything. This is just, I, I enjoy it. This is, you know, something that I don't know as much about as, yeah. you know, something. What's well, like exciting how, how fast it's grown. I mean, literally, you know, you start, when did you start selling Virtue? 2011 or 2012. 12? So we announced the company in 2011, bought our first crop in 2011, pressed it fermented it, aged it, and then released it in 2012, really just in Chicago. And then I think we brought a, 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 a few cases out for Cider Week in, in 2012. Uh, in 2012. Yeah. We yeah. did that little thing down in uh, by the by yeah. the East River. In, uh, we had some great festivals. Yeah. We've been coming out a lot. Um, but I, I like this mitten. So just, let me see the bottle because this is pretty. Yeah. Cool. So, so the mitten, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm get getting there story. the longest possible <laughs> way to the story. So, in in France, it's the Duponts that were my um, inspiration. And while I love their ciders, I also love their Calvados, which I was familiar with. But then there was this new thing that I was completely um, um, ignorant of, and that's Pamo, which is the basically distilled Calvados um, aged with fresh pressed juice in the barrel. And, you know, I love that. I brought bottles of that back to Chicago. Everybody's like, what is this stuff? This is crazy. Are you going to make this? I'm like, can't really make this because we're not going to be distilling. But, hmm, what if we fermented cider, put it in a bourbon barrel, because I got a lead on bourbon barrels, and then back sweeten it with juice, then it would have some of that kind of pomo component of being kind of a little bit kind of liquory, spirity with uh, with the barrel, and then have the back sweetening component of the juice and the fresh apple component of the juice. So that's how we came up with doing the mitten. And that that's actually a great thing to talk about because there's so many great styles of cider and, and pomo for me has been a personal favorite. Comes in about 16, 70%. We're off for a great start here with Greg Hall. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio. We've got Greg Hall from Virtue Cider. We're tasting his mitten, and we're talking about Pomo and barrel aging. And uh, Brandon Woodcock, one of our Cicerone buddies, what, what was your question for, for Greg about well, barrel aging? Well, so we had just... Uh, gotten to the spot of using the barrel to um, add something to the cider and then back sweetening it with juice so that we could approach Pomo and I was just asking in the process were you going for Greg uh, a little bit of the oak from from the wood was there intentional um, absorption of any of the uh, alcohol from the barrel I just was trying to grasp uh, what the idea was there and, and how you got to the final spot well, you know, one of the things we're really going for with our ciders is is complexity. And I believe that um, many drinkers take kind of the same path where everybody kind of starts out with um, kind of simple refreshment as a drink. And then um, most people stay there. Most people never go past simple refreshment. But then, then the people that do... Generally, the reaction is to go from that, go 180 to like extreme intensity. So they go from drinking, you know, Bud, Bud Light to Imperial IPA in like two weeks, and then and then that's all they drink. Um, <laughs> or because, Bourbon County, yeah, or Bourbon yeah. County. It, they they want something. They know that beer is supposed to have flavor. They haven't learned quite yet about flavor. So they just want as much flavor as possible. They know more flavors better. 
And then it takes a while for them to kind of figure out what they actually like. They just feel like, you know, I believe it's kind of their brand, their personal brand, that they want to be the guy who likes intense flavor. Um, and then a portion of those people graduate to the next level, which is um, complexity. And they, so people go kind of from, you know, simple refreshment to intensity to complexity. And, you know, up until about 10 years ago, that meant going to wine. That was the next step because there weren't beers available in the U.S., widely at least, that were complex. There were beers that were, you know, had um, kind of nice, refreshing character. And then there were ones that had like big flavor spikes. They were like super roasty or super hoppy or bitter or sweet or but but nothing with like multiple flavor spikes like I, I remember trying to sell beer into a wine shop in Chicago like 15 years ago and they had these glasses up on the wall with like you know Pinot Noir and then they had like fudge berries cherries all these different you know small aromas that were in there and you know I'm thinking you know beer needs to get there too and, and even in the uh, Belgian examples that you might have had 10 years ago likely they're getting beat up in their way over, you know, thinking of the Saison Saison Ponce or something that might have been sure. on the shelf at that time. It's probably not going through a lot of inventory. You but know, he's, he's right about refreshes. going from you know intensity to complexity, and uh, we see that with sour beers, and you've done that. Yeah. Let's 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 get into this this next there. So this is something you didn't make. This is from the Finger Lakes in New York South Hill. It's called Pack Basket, and what it is is uh, there's a bunch of guys in New York that are going and gathering. They're finding old. Old trees, heirloom trees, lost apples, they call it. This is a mix of, of apple and pears that were gathered in the Finger Lakes region. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's open fermented or wild fermented, but I kind of want to get into that direction in terms of complexity and flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so these are foraged apples. Right. Kind of naturally made cider. You know, this is, this is a very beautiful, um, very apple-forward um, cider. And, um, you know, I would guess that this is wild fermented, not open fermented, because when you go open, you tend to get um, acetobacter, acetobacter in there and start to go a little more acetic and have that kind of vinegary note that the, um, the Spanish are kind of known for, which is certainly acceptable in, in certain styles of cider. And, like as stories. And, and, yeah, and, and, and typical even. Um, so not at all thought to be a flaw in a Spanish cider. Um, maybe in other ciders a little bit more of unexpected. I, I get some in Somerset, um, but not so much in Herefordshire in England. So, I mean, it's, um, you know, it, it can be a, a regional taste. I don't get it in here. So here I get really nice apple character. I don't get a lot of yeast character. Um, you know, doesn't taste like it's barrel aged. So it's just basically nice native fermented um, mix of apples, and that's one of the things that I think people um, expect. Excuse me on, on the apple side. Apples are are really um, the 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 apple people have done a great job of marketing apples and made apples this incredibly wholesome American thing that's not even really from America, <laughs> but it's the most American of of non of of uh, um, immigrant fruits, um, should we call it? Um, it's a lot of Chinese apples these days, right? Like, well, there's a lot of Chinese apples, but I mean, apples just, you know, they're from Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. you know, and then they came over to Europe and then they, you know, the Romans brought them up to England and... Um, but so many so many apples kind of morphed in America for so many centuries now. Right. Yeah, we have our own variety. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are there are some like, uh, according to Michael uh, uh, Pollan, there's like... 13,000 named varieties in the U.S. alone. So um, uh, I think um, because people are used to um, wines in particular being very much um, all about the grape, you know, very varietal driven, they ask me all the time, and I know they ask other cider makers, you know, oh, what apples? What What are the apples? Like, do you make a Granny Smith cider? And, you know... I want to be nice and say, you know, no, and explain it. But it's like we would never make a cider with one apple. You know, I mean, 
there are a few English varieties like Kingston Black, which are notable for making pretty darn good cider all on their own. But if you go to England and you go to France, pretty much everybody makes cider with a broad mix of apples, and they have no idea what the ratios are. You know, they are not, it's not like a beer recipe. You know, it's not like baking a cake. You know, it's more like making soup, you know. You don't, you, you don't get in trouble for putting in one too many carrots in your big bowl of soup, right? You put in whatever you got, and that's what you got. Um, when you're making cider, you know, we get run-of-field apples um, from our farmers. We press it, and, um, you know, each tank's going to be a little bit different. And then we're going we're gonna to blend them to get to our finished stuff. And, you know, with guys like um, Aaron Burr and the South Hill Cider Company, um, I think that's that is a uh, that's something that um, nobody else can really do besides the cider folk is go out and make stuff that is either um, you know forage ciders or we do at Virtue we do a number of um, single orchard ciders so we do an orchard series where we get stuff from one orchard um, press it ferment it with the native yeast you know no sulfites. No barrel aging, no filtration, generally even the cellar for about 18 months, comes out bright, and they're all completely different. So um, that, I think, makes cider the most agricultural of all the drinks right now. No, you know? That's what we love about it, too, you know? I mean, this cider is so different from the mitten, and it's almost like every batch could be different, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I would expect that. If they're if they're foraging apples, yeah, of course every app, everyone's going to be different. Yeah, let's keep yeah. talking about. Well, you got a question? Yeah, no, it was just imagining uh, foraging barley for a beer recipe. <laughs> How many years would you have to forage barley? <laughs> but uh, I, I did have a question, which was just um, so. Then, if you're blending each batch, and you do, of course, probably want to have some consistency with the products that you have in the market, Absolutely. what people have come to expect from the flavor profiles. I, I'm guessing then, and maybe you can confirm or deny, is, is fermentation then becomes a great deal of what you wind up managing in order to get to your final flavor profile that you're anticipating. Right. So when we when we um, look at the components that add character to the cider, um, there are really four big things for us. Um, one is is the the apples themselves. Um, you know, somewhat the varieties of apples. Some are more high acid. Some are more high aroma. Some are more high tannin. Second, and really equally important, is the condition of the apples. So when the apples are right off the tree is when they hold the most water and they're the least concentrated and, to me, the least interesting. If you go to England, France, or Spain, they don't pick apples off trees. They let them drop when they're ripe, and then they don't pick them off the ground, you know, the moment they hit the ground they pick them up when there's enough apples to pick up. So some of those apples might be on the ground five or ten days, you know. So what happens? Do they start to over-ripen and even get close to rot? You know, yeah, of course, you know. And then they press that, and you get this mix of apples that are ripe and overripe, and that adds the complexity to the ciders that you get from these farmhouse cideries in England, France, and Spain. On top of it, they're not using a cultured yeast. They're using the microflora that's on the fruit to ferment it. Mm. And that microflora is going to be different not only from um, orchard to orchard, but from, you know, week to week within the same orchard. So, um, yeah, there's just all this crazy variable in there. And then they put it in barrels, and each barrel, you know, it's not like they... Barrel, a barrel is a stainless tank that you can sterilize. I mean, it's a barrel. It's porous. It's alive. There's microflora in there that you'll never get out. So you might put the exact same cider into three barrels and get three different ciders coming out. So we look at, at what impacts the flavor of the cider is the apple itself, the variety, the condition of the apple, the fermentation, and then the barrel aging. So we, all of those go into our ciders. So most of our ciders are either, well, virtually all of our ciders are a blend of multiple yeast. 
what, what we found right away was when we were doing test batches, it was pretty easy to test taste the individual yeast in the cider because, again, cider doesn't have as much character as beer, so the yeast pops out a little bit more. It can be a little more front and center. Um, so then we said, okay, well, let's try blending two. And sometimes you could still pick out one or the other. Once we got up to blending three, they're all gone. They disappear. It gets too complex. Greg, do you think that you, you, compared to most other cider makers in America, do you think you have more experience with barrel aging and then because of your background? Well, I think, um, I think it's fair to say that um, there's, you know, a guy like Steve Wood's been barrel aging probably longer than me, but um, not at the scale that I have. Um, so, um, yeah, I've, I've probably uh, put more stuff in and out of a barrel than most people who are making cider. You know, I'm in the team picture, certainly. Because that, that mitten's great. I mean, mm-hmm. now that you've told me how you made it, <laughs> I, and that's going to be one of my go-to ciders. Yeah, barrel so, age a little fruit back, but that you know that that was. I love doing these tastings because I get to taste things that I usually wouldn't, and um, hopefully our listeners too can uh, get to experience that. Yeah, you know, and, and speaking of barrel aging, uh, just last month we hosted in Chicago again the Festival of Barrel Age Beer. So I think it's about the twelfth year they've been doing that. The first five or six were at Goose Island. We actually hosted it at one of our brew pubs, and then it got so big, now it's at the um, UIC Forum, so it's in an arena like having it at MSG, Um, and there are thousands of people there, and um, hundreds of barrel-aged beers. Three years ago, they added a cider category for barrel-aged cider at our uh, request, and um, the first year, uh, we were lucky enough to win the gold medal with the mitten. Um, the second year, uh, we won the gold medal with our Cidre Brut um, La Panette, which is aged in French oak. And then this year, the third year, we won the gold medal with Percheron, which is our uh, barrel-aged um, Cidre Fermier. So we're kind of three for three at Fobab. So... I, I think if there's another cider maker out there that wants to argue that he knows more about uh, barrel aging cider, you know, in the U.S. at least, um, he needs to get his beers, or he or she certainly needs to get their ciders into Fobat. All right. One thing I, li- I like that um, you mentioned that there were ciders as well as beers at that event, and I feel like that's more common in England. And you said you're at the Maltings, and you went for ales, but you saw forty different casts of ciders. I, I, I like that. Um, what do you think that's going to happen with Virtue that's going to set you apart? Because I feel like there's a lot of like basic, you know, I would call them cheap ciders that I don't drink. Mm-hmm. I like the fine ciders. Um, what, what are the plans that you have? You know, new products, uh, new focus? You know, our focus is, is always going to be on, on three things. The apples, the barrels, and the farm. So that we think... Um, doesn't make us absolutely unique, um, but I think our emphasis, particularly on barrel aging um, and uh, having a little bit more sophistication than some of the other guys with fermentation, um, gives us an edge on complexity. And what we try to do with all of our ciders, you know, the stuff that, that we ferment that's in the tank um, after it was pressed tastes great. But we say, boy, what if we can, like, layer more stuff in there? You know, what if we can add just a little bit more acid from this tank and then, you know, put it in a barrel and get a little bit more, um, you know, get some barrel aging, too. And then we've got this other tank that's been on lease for nine months. So it smells like dirty diapers, but it's got this wonderful, rich umami flavor. And if we put in 5% of that, then we're getting somewhere. You know, we're getting to a point of... It's impossible to make the cider in one tank, um, but when we put it all together, we come up with stuff that's just got layers and layers and layers of complexity, and uh, that's where we're going to continue to go. That's great, man. We're off to a great talk here with Greg Hall, talking about Virtue Cider on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, this is a special cider show. We've got Greg Hall from Virtue Cider 
and two of his Cicerone buddies. And, and Josh, um, you have a question for Greg because we're going to talk about uh, the fruit and sources of uh, you know the virtue side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Greg, I'm I'm from Michigan, you know, uh, born and raised there, and I know you spent you know years and years and years in Chicago, Goose Island. Uh, my question is kind of what what drew you into Michigan? Why Southwest Michigan? Um, what what about Fenville in particular um, and the orchards around it kind of drew you over there? You know that's that's a great question, and again that draws me back to my trips to Europe. You go to England; um, all the great ciders are in the Southwest. They're near the coast. They get about forty inches of rain in Somerset and Herefordshire and and South Wales. You go to France, Brittany, Normandy, they're on the coast, they get about 40 inches of rain. You go to Spain, Asturias, Basque region, they're on the coast, they get about 40 inches of rain. Um, Lake Michigan is pretty much an inland sea. Um, We get about 40 inches of rain there. Um, You go upstate New York, they get about 40 inches of rain. Um, Those are the the two traditional great apple-growing regions of the U.S., you go out to uh, visit my friends in Washington, where they grow most of the, um, not just the apples, but the hops. Um, They grow in the Yakima Valley, which is a desert. They get about seven inches of rain, Um, but they irrigate. If you talk to the English guys, um, they will tell you that the best fruit um, comes from from trees that are not irrigated. that where the trees have to work a little bit, where the trees, um, you know, might get an inch and a half of rain in a weekend, and then it doesn't rain for three weeks. So what are they going to do? Does the tree die? Of course, the tree doesn't die. I mean, if trees died in droughts, we wouldn't have trees because trees have been around for you know dozens and hundreds. In the case of you know, uh, um, so more than the five big trees or thirteen generations. Yes. Um, uh, big trees, at least. So, um, so th- they hold the water, and that I think adds complexity to the fruit. I don't have any science behind that, but I have the the, the word of some of the best. Um, so you feel so. Michigan, I know Michigan has has a tradition of uh, apples and fruit. It's a great place for that. We've met s- several other cider makers from mm. Left Foot Charlie's from Traverse City. We have a show with them in the works. And uh, this Uncle John's, which we've all heard of. What, 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 tell us more about this Michigan cider community. Yeah, so we, um, what we, we call it the Michigan Cider Coast. So basically from um, all the way up the, um, the western edge of the state and the eastern edge of Lake Michigan are orchards in all those counties. Um, and uh, it's because you know, you plant the tree and you don't have to water it. It rains. You know, it, it, the tree takes care of itself. And uh, Michigan's the, the number three apple growing state just behind um, the fine empire state of New York. New York. Um, but uh, yeah, New York and Michigan being Great Lakes uh, states get a lot of Great Lakes rain and um, are fantastic for growing apples naturally. But for you guys, too, as, as a business, you know, working with the different fruit growers in your state, th- that must be good for, for everybody, right? Oh, it really is. And, you know, you ask about other cider makers in Michigan. There's a lot in Michigan, as there are now a lot popping up upstate New York. Um, if you look at wine, where do you open a winery? You open a winery where the grapes are. Now, I know you got an urban winery here in in New York, and we got one in Chicago too. But generally, you put the winery where the grapes are. You put the brewery on the other hand where the people are. You know, there's a, there's a couple breweries like out in Yakima. You know, Burt Gransel Brewery was out there where the hops are. But you can move hops around pretty easily. Um, you know, some of the best hoppy beers um, in the on the planet are made in the East Coast. I mean, what's the the heady topper guys. I mean, yep. how close are yeah. how close are they to hops? Not very close. Yet um, their beer is pretty fantastic, and we had some great stuff uh, over in Brooklyn. Um, you went to probably threes and threes other half. half. Yep, uh, threes other half, and you know you got West Coast guys like Ten Barrel make great hoppy beer. My old company, uh, Goose Island in Chicago. We're in Chicago. And uh, we've won six gold medals with our IPA. 
So um, the ingredients of beer are portable. The ingredients of um, cider, if you're making it the natural way and actually buying apples, are, are sure you can move apples around, but it's a lot more expensive because the apple contains not only your fermentable sugar and your flavor, but it also contains all your water. You know, you're not adding water to make cider. It's you're getting the juice straight out of the fruit. So um, it's important to be where the apples are, and because there's so many great apples in Michigan, there are 950 family farms that have been growing apples for. You know, we, we work with uh, Alan Overheiser. His family's been growing apples in South Haven, Michigan, since 1852. You know, um, the, that's a good place to be when you want to make cider. Uh, yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a good thing about what you're doing. I've never heard about the 40 inches of rain as the barometer of, like, great apples. But we're tasting another uh, cider that, you know, Eden Sparkling Cider. And we know she started basically making ice ciders up in Vermont, but now this is something that's dry with, with a champagne yeast. Mm-hmm. And just tell us what, how you taste this, and, and would you make a product like this? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think this is more her style. She's always been very fruit-forward. Uh, she has access to, and I think she grows some of her own, um, bittersweet apples. And bittersweet apples are very special. Um, you know, some of the best ciders in the world are made with bittersweet apples. And I think if you're making a cider that is purely apple-focused, bittersweet apples are the best way to go because they add um, not only flavor but tannin and some extra complexity um, from from that tannin that gives, you know, the cider just more layers of stuff going on. And then, you know, um, you mix in a little bit of high-acid fruit to it as well and you're ready to go. Um, there was kind of some talk a year ago about America was running out of cider fruit. There wasn't enough cider fruit to make all this cider that was happening in America. And um, the funny thing, here's the funny thing about this story. So I read this story. Cider can be fun, right? <laughs> yeah. So I read the story in Modern Farmer, you know, like super lefty, urban hipster um, sure. Magazine, right? Like, you know, and and then um, I read the same story again a week later in the Wall Street Journal. You know, which it's <laughs> like, okay, I don't think they hire the same writers. You know, <laughs> um, the Wall Street Journal. So it's yeah. like, okay, somebody pitched this story, and I'm thinking this really reminds me of a story that I heard about maybe 20 years ago about beer needs to be made with European noble hops that all the best beers are made with European noble hops. And if you're not using European noble hops, you're settling for second best. And it was an American brewery actually pitching that story. And it just so happens that American brewery now makes cider too. And they make their cider not with American fruit, but with um, apple juice concentrate from Europe. So do they grow great hops in Europe? Absolutely. Fantastic hops. Do they grow great apples in Europe? Absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful apples. But you know what? I'll take American hops and I'll take American apples. And you know what? I think I can do just fine with those. Thank you. All right. Well, absolutely. I mean, if if you look at a cider like you were talking about with the Leadbury, that was of an English style with American ingredients, right? Mm -hmm. So you can totally get there. Uh, As a curious listener to what you were just saying, I kind of want to call out the... uh, the brewery slash uh, cidery that you were just talking about. <laughs> we don't have to because we're only talking about quality products on this show. Right. No. Let's, let's, let, let's go back to beer. So, you know, um, a very cool ex- experience I had when, when you were, before you left Goose Island to start Virtue, um, we had had a, a cool dinner here. It was a, called Duck, Duck, Goose, and we had a whole duck menu with, with some of your three sister beers. And a, a short time after that, we had ordered, uh, going back to beer, if that's mm-hmm. okay, your King Henry Barley Wine Ale, and I happen to have two bottles left there at Jimmy's Number 43, and we just opened one to celebrate your, uh, you know, some of your great, you know, Thank you. experience Thank and you. everything. So, this is um, this was a beer that we had planned for a long time. Um, you know, we'd been doing a uh, bourbon barrel aged imperial stout since 1992, 
and we always thought about what else could we put in a bourbon barrel that would, you know, that would do justice to it. We didn't want to throw everything we made in a bourbon barrel. Um, so we thought, you know, it would have to be a barley wine. It would have to be a barley wine that is, you know, more in the English barley wine, like uh, Thomas Hardy, um, than a, you know, big hoppy barley wine, like a Bigfoot or something. Mm-hmm. Because we know it's going to oxidize in the barrel. Um, and then it'd have to be the right barrels. So, um, you know, it all started actually with uh, um, uh, my friend Julian uh, Van Winkle, the third, I believe. Um, he was, uh, he comes up to Chicago a lot, um, goes in this wonderful. Does he have anything to do with bourbon? Yes, he does. <laughs> Hangs out at this. Uh, Is it Pappy Van Winkle? Great, thing? great bar called Delilah's. So I've met Julian a couple times there and talked barrels. And um, so back in 2008, um, I called him up and said, uh, maybe I called him up first time in 2007, but 2008, got him on the phone. I said, listen, um, you promised me you would give me your um, pappy 23-year-old barrels next time you dumped them. And you said you'd be dumping them in January or whatever month. And so I'm calling you. And he's like, okay, well, I got to, you know, I'm, I'm going to, how many are you going to want? And I said, how many are you going to have? And he said, I don't know, about 100. And I said, I'll take all of them. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to have to charge you more for these. I'm going to have to charge you like 200 bucks. And I'm like, instead of 150. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. So that was back in the day, right? That was back in the day. So then I called down to the dock and said, okay, when that truck comes, you know, do not open the back door until I am standing there. Because when the truck shows up and you open the back door, all that aroma just kind of like <laughs> wafes out. And that smelled pretty good. Now, my production manager at the time was like, $200 barrels? What the, what the heck are you doing? You're breaking the budget on those. I'm like, these are very special barrels. So then we filled them up with, uh, with beer, with Bourbon County Stout. And we put them in the corner, and then a year later, when we were dumping all the Bourbon County Stout barrels, I said, no, 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 we're going to save those for another year. And again, the production manager's like, save them for another year? Two years? In these $200 barrels? You're crazy. And uh, but we saved them, and then a year later, we released uh, Bourbon County Rare, which was the first time we released that. It was in... Uh, Pappy Barrels, Pappy 23s for for um, two whole years. And, uh, you know, we figured these barrels, um, the, the stuff that came out of it was so damn good, these barrels aren't done yet. So we had a plan to, as soon as we dumped them, we would put in not another Bourbon County, but we'd put in a barley wine. And um, we had done a, we'd done a pub crawl um, with a bunch of, Retailers and wholesalers, and done a pub quiz, and some of the winners got went along, and we um, we went out to um, um, uh, caught. I'm blanking on it, but the um, <laughs> somewhere in Chicago. No, 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 in England, um, uh, west of up the Thames, um, um, Hampton Court Palace, which was the um, castle. That uh, uh, King I will, Henry I will VIII say, lived I, in. I love hearing about your travels to England because, to me, I find it an inspiring place for all these things: beer, oh man, cider, and 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 the life we want to lead. So absolutely, this is a great. So great so you story. go to Hampton Court Palace. They've got like their old kitchen, you know, there mm-hmm. with like these fireplaces that Jim, I swear to God, are as big as your stage. You know, they're just huge, and they would roast like whole oxes and stuff in there. And then they've got their barrel room where they. S- they stored their strong ale, and they've got all these barrels down there. And I'm like, you know what? Let's do a barrel-aged barley wine. You know, big-ass, huge, malty barley wine. So, gents, how many of these are out there? This is the King Henry 2011. <laughs> this is brilliant, and I appreciate you guys asked me to open it. I've, I've never had this beer before. And just, like, right on the nose, there's so much... Like it's so smooth, it's so it's got those like berry or the the barrel little sherry notes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the best, if not the best, barley wine I've ever had. Like yeah. hands down, it is. Um, it is. Uh, you know, we we had a the whole team um, 
you know, and uh, John Laffler, who was with us at the time, kind of our barrel manager, now runs Off Color Brewing in Chicago. He, um, which I, I get a lot of that stuff. I love their beers. Great, great beers, great beers. Um, John's a buddy, and he makes great stuff. And he really ran um, the barrel program for us at the time. Um, so he had a he had a big part in making this. And um, you know, we named it King Henry for two reasons. One, because I was inspired by this wonderful castle that had all these barrels in it. And then secondly, because I've got two kids. I've got a daughter named Sophie, and guess what? She got a beer. Then i got a son <laughs> named Henry, and he's like, you know, Dad, what the F? You so know, who the hell is Matilda? Where's, 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 my, where's my beer? Actually, somebody just asked me that today. I was at, um, I was at, uh, I was, had lunch at um, John Dory, and I ran into a guy from Chicago who had moved here now. And he's like, hey, what are you doing here? And he's like, uh, how are your kids? Uh, Sophie and Matilda. And I'm like, oh, Sophie's great. She's nice, cool. Matilda died. And he's like, oh, my God. Like, about 800 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, about 1,000 years ago. She was a Tuscan countess. Yeah. So she was not my daughter. But it's funny. I get that question asked all the time. You know, how are Sophie... Oh, your daughter, Sophie Matilda, and I always say, oh, Sophie's doing great, she's got two There's jobs. Julie, what about Juliet, you know? And then uh, Matilda died. Uh, and everyone's uh, like, oh, man. Uh, one, one, thing I to do, one thing I want to do with this show today is, is to reintroduce everybody to Greg Hall, because even when, when you were with Goose Island, you know, for me, the beers that I wanted were, were the Juliet, the Matilda, the, the, the three sisters, and, and those special beers, and of course, this King Henry Barley wine, and uh, I love that you've you've put down your footprint in, in the cider world and things like the mitten and, and I'm looking forward to what you guys are going to be doing in the next few years and uh, sadly our show is going to end but I want to, I want to thank uh, Greg and Brendan and Josh for joining me here from, from Virtue Cider big shout out to our engineer Jack Inslee who's going to turn this into a, a really great show sometime in, in January and to our sponsor Unibear Distributors or suppliers of great world class ales and ciders I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining me on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. All right. All right. Woo. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.